Hi, everybody. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik, and I'm a friend of your pastor, Miles de Benedictus, and of course, his whole family. So it's a great joy for me to come, a great pleasure for me, maybe I should say, to come and be with you with the Cross Connection family this particular weekend. And here online, I'm going to continue on into Nehemiah chapter 5 as we've been making our way through the book of Nehemiah. We come to chapter 5 today, and it's real my privilege to come and bring you something from God's Word. So when we open up to Nehemiah chapter 5, I just want to begin with this little preface, this little beginning thought, that we know that the book of Nehemiah in the big picture is about a building project, about the need to build the walls around the city of Jerusalem after Jerusalem had been conquered by the Babylonians several decades before the time of Nehemiah. So it's really about a building project, about rebuilding. And it's the most common thing in the world for a building project to have money problems. Nehemiah chapter 5 begins with money problems, but not the kind that we normally think of associated with a building project. Here, notice it here, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1, where we read, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Now, one fascinating thing about Nehemiah chapter 5 is how it regards the work of building the walls. You'll see what I mean about that in just a moment. Nehemiah chapter 4 ended on a note of tremendous victory. The people of God were doing the work of God, and they did it despite significant obstacles. I love that verse at the end of Nehemiah chapter 4, where it talks about them working with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. They're both fighting and building at the same time, and they were not going to let their enemies stop them. But in Nehemiah chapter 5, there's really no mention of working on the wall. As far as Nehemiah chapter 5 is concerned, the work of building the wall around Jerusalem has stopped. And it stopped because, look again at verse 1, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. You see, the work stopped because of strife among God's people. Now, arguing, disputing, disagreement. The enemy could not stop the work of God in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem by any kind of direct attack. That's what we saw in Nehemiah chapter 4. But the work did stop when God's people were not unified and when they weren't working together. Now, this means that one group was fighting against another group when it came to their Jewish brethren. Again, verse 1, a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. When God's people are fighting each other, they're not fighting the real enemy, the enemy of our souls, nor are they really getting God's work done. Now, what was the reason for this kind of strife among God's people? 
Well, simply said, you could say it was because of money problems. I'm going to read to you verses 2 through 5 here of Nehemiah chapter 5, where we read this. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. Those four verses, Nehemiah chapter 5 verses 2 through 5, basically describe four different reasons for the financial trouble, for the strife that was at its root because of uh, financial troubles and disputes and difficulties among the people of Jerusalem. Now, again, I want to emphasize that Nehemiah is not primarily a book about money. It's primarily a book about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and bringing the people of God into a place of peace, a place of security, and a place of blessing. Yet, money problems directly affected the rebuilding work, not in the way we would normally think. Look, most building projects have a money problem. There's not enough money to pay for the building project. But that was not the situation here in the book of Nehemiah. If you remember, going all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 2, the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem seems to have been paid for by the king of Persia, who provided the necessary building materials for Nehemiah. You'll find that back in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 8, and he sent him with royal guards. That's in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 9. Nehemiah's money problems were different. There was enough money to do the work of rebuilding the walls, but the money problems that he had were the problems that rose among the people that harmed the unity among the people of God. And because the people of God were not unified, they were not working together to see the work of God done. Now, as I mentioned, I suggest to you that these four verses, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, give us four reasons for the money problems that they were suffering there in Jerusalem at that time. Here's the first reason. If you look at verse 2, it says, let us get grain that we may eat and live. I'm kind of supposing from that, that the people were saying to Nehemiah, hey, we've been working on the walls a lot. Doesn't chapter 4 describe that in a beautiful and powerful way? We've been working on the walls a lot. We need time to go raise our crops. We need time to go uh, address the other things that we're addressing. We need the time. We've been spending too much time, at least so to speak, working on the walls. We need to spend some time providing for the needs of our household. You know, every once in a while, I'll meet somebody who feels that they have a call to ministry. And 
who am I most of the time to doubt somebody's call for ministry? But if a person feels called to ministry and they're not providing for the needs of their family, well, then that's a problem, biblically speaking, because the Bible puts a very high priority on the ability of people to provide for the needs of their own household. So this could have been part of the problem. Again, indicated by verse 2, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Okay, so that's the first reason. The second reason is found in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, I think it is, they mention because of the famine. People had money problems because there was a famine. That obviously makes food more expensive. And it was so expensive that some people had to mortgage their property just to provide food. So first, they were giving a lot of their time and attention to the work of rebuilding the walls. Secondly, it was because of the famine. Third, if you'll notice, verse 4 mentions the king's tax. Well, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? People had money problems because the government kept taxing them, even though they weren't working as much, and even though the cost of living went up. The king's tax, the government taxes, were a significant reason why there were money problems among the people of Jerusalem. That's the third reason. Take a look at verse 4 to give an idea of the fourth reason. Verse 4, we have that phrase where they say, we have borrowed money. And then in verse 5, it says, indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. People had financial problems because they had taken out loans that they couldn't keep up the payments on. You see, the loans they had taken out to live cost them interest, and they were in default. And in the ancient world, when you were in default, somebody had to become a slave to somebody else. Oftentimes in family, it was children. That's why they describe in verse 5, Indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Again, people would have to go into servitude to simply work off the debt. Some people in Nehemiah's day had to give their children as servants to their lenders to pay off the debt. Now, what kind of debt and what kind of interest are we talking about here? Well, Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 11, we'll get to that in a few minutes, uses the phrase, the hundredth part, which basically probably means that they were charging 12% interest a year. And back in those days at that times, that was considered to be not only an excessive interest rate, but it also went against a general principle in the Bible that we'll talk about a little bit later, that you should not make money off of other people's misfortune. Okay, we'll talk about it in a few moments. But let's get back to our four reasons why they were having financial trouble. Number one, they were focused on building the walls and not on providing. Number two, there was a famine. Number three, they had high taxes. And number four, they had too much debt and the interest was killing them. Now, friends, you know how it is. It's not unusual for money problems to create strife and to completely disrupt what God wants to do. And if Nehemiah and the people around him did not find a way to do what God wanted them to do with their money and with their money problems, the work of God would be stopped. And by the way, can I say that work of God would have been stopped without a single 
arrow being fired by the enemies of God. This was stopping the work of building the wall in a way that the obvious enemies of God could never stop it. You see, friends, sometimes we want to separate what we do with our money, uh, set it apart from our own walk with God. We, We put things into different compartments, don't we? And we kind of have this mental compartment. Okay, here's my responsibility before God. And here's another mental compartment. This is what I do with my money. And we sometimes determine the two of them are never going to meet. That is a huge trap from the evil one. Friends, what you do with your money reflects your spiritual life, not just your financial life. Buying a house is a spiritual decision, not just a financial one. Taking a job, choosing a career, deciding how much money you should make, all of these are matters that directly affect your walk with God both now and into the future. And if we don't handle our money with the right kind of heart and with financial decisions that are made with an eye to eternity— then we can make mistakes that will affect the work of God in our life for years and years. Let me give you one essential aspect to handling our money rightly before God. And I want to emphasize, this is only one principle. There are several other principles about handling our money the way that God would want us to. But I just want to say that one aspect of dealing with our money right before God is being a giver. Being a giver to the work of the Lord helps us to always remember that God and his kingdom come first. And the New Testament tells us that our giving should be regular, it should be thoughtful, it should be proportional, and it should be private You'll find all those principles in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And 2 Corinthians chapter 9 tells us that our giving must be generous, freely given, and cheerful. God cares about our giving and how we give. But you also understand this, that money problems are rarely only money problems. Sometimes we think, that our only money problem is that we don't have enough of it. And we think that if we had more money, (laughs) then our money problems would go away. Friends, that's not true. And that's something that is proven to not be true. If you just look at the lives of many of those people who win the lottery or come into unexpected riches, those kind of people... If they had money problems before, if they didn't know how to handle their money, if they didn't know how to glorify God with their money, then they're not going to know how to handle their money after they get all that money. The problems will soon show up and oftentimes bigger than ever. All right. So what happened now in response to these things? We had these four areas. Again, I'll, I'll repeat them again just for the sake of repetition. Um, They were focused on building the walls and not on providing. There was a famine, there were high taxes, and they had too much debt and the interest was killing them. Okay, so what was Nehemiah's reaction? Well, you know Nehemiah, he's kind of a hothead, at least a little bit. Look at Nehemiah's reaction there in verse 6. Nehemiah says this, 
and I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. <laughs> Nehemiah became angry because in part these money problems were caused by the greed of those who wanted to make profit off the money troubles of others. That is something that the law of Moses clearly said was wrong in its commands against charging what we sometimes call, it's a word we don't often use in everyday language, but it sort of has a religious or financial context to it, usury. Usury has the idea of excessive or improper interest. God said, you don't profit off the money troubles of others. And so Nehemiah became very angry when he heard that these money problems were causing strife among the people of God and that the work had stopped because of it. Again, I want to emphasize there is no mention made of the work on the walls in Nehemiah chapter 5. These money problems were stopping the work of the Lord in rebuilding the walls. And that must have been frustrating to Nehemiah. After the great victory of Nehemiah chapter 4, now you have these money problems pushing the pause button on the furthering of the work in Nehemiah chapter 5. So what's Nehemiah going to do about it? Well, Nehemiah is a great leader. He's a leader among men. So look at his wise response He's going to confront those who are in the wrong. I'm going to read to you Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Here we go. After serious thought, maybe we should stop right there. Isn't that good to begin with? Nehemiah got angry in verse 6, but before he did anything, he gave it serious thought and when Nehemiah says serious thought, you just know that he was praying about it as well. He wasn't only thinking about it, but he was thinking about it and praying about it. So after giving the situation serious thought, he just didn't respond in the anger of verse 6, but after the serious and I would assume prayerful thought of verse 7, I'll start again here. It says, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from your brother, so I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, and lending them money and grain, please let us stop this usury. Restore to them now, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. I love it. He thought very careful about this. He, he thought about the four causes of their money problems. Again, focused on building the walls and not on providing, on the famine, on the high taxes, and they had too much debt, and the interest was killing them. Now, the only thing that Nehemiah could really do anything about 
was the last problem, the interest, the debt. And you know what? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't know if that was the worst of the four problems, but it was the one that Nehemiah could do something about. So he addressed that first. He knew that the work of rebuilding the walls had to go on, at least in some way. Nehemiah couldn't really do anything about the famine. He couldn't make it rain. He certainly couldn't tell the king of Persia, don't take your taxes anymore. But what he could do is he could address those among the people of Jerusalem who were making an unfair and an unrighteous profit off of the unfortunate circumstances of others. So what did he do? Look at verse 7. It says, the Nehemiah says, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. I'll tell you what, Nehemiah was no coward. I guess standing as being the cupbearer to the king gets you around being around, gets you used to, I should say, being around important and prestigious people. So the nobles and the rulers in Jerusalem didn't bother Nehemiah at all. He could say, listen, I was cupbearer to a king. And when people were in the wrong, Nehemiah would confront them. He told them the truth and the result is going to turn out to be very good. So I'm going to assume that he told the truth in love. You know, it's one thing to tell the truth. It's another thing to make sure you tell it in love. And what did he tell them? Look at it here, verse 7. Their great crime was, each of you is exacting usury from your brother. Now, I know that there's some other translations that just say interest here, but I like the word usury because usury is interest on a loan that's either too high or should not be charged at all. The Bible says, again, you could go back to Exodus chapter 22, I think it's verse 5, that it's wrong to make money off of someone's financial need. If someone needs money for the most basic needs of life, they should be given money, not loaned it at interest. Now, I think that even in a biblical economy, loaning money at interest is permitted for things that are not absolute necessities. Yet, God's people must always use great wisdom, great self-control in borrowing money. Look, I don't have to tell you how many of us have really gotten into trouble by we've overextended ourselves, we've borrowed too much. We've borrowed without really any ability to repay. Hey, if that would have happened to you back in Nehemiah's day, you or some of your children would have been sold into slavery until those debts were repaid. Until someone's able to redeem you. That's what he's talking about in verse 8 when he says, We have redeemed our Jewish brethren. You see, Nehemiah noted that when Judah was conquered, many Jews were sold as slaves to foreigners, and many of them had been bought out of that condition of slavery by their fellow Jews. And because of that whole history, it was very wrong to have Jews being sold into slavery to their fellow Jews because they couldn't pay off these high-interest loans. You see, instead of doing that, they should have, look at verse 9, should you not walk in the fear of our God? You know, isn't that where a lot of business deals go wrong before God? 
because there's no regard for God's will or wisdom. Look, friends, as I speak to you today, I, I don't know what you do for a living. Maybe some of you are in business and you buy and sell and you make deals and you do this. Praise the Lord. I, I think there's wonderful kingdom opportunities for people in the realm of business, but you better do your business honestly. You better do your business in a way that honors God. When we act with our money and in our business in ways that do not give regard for God's will or wisdom, if our only concern is if we can make the deal and if we're going to make some money of it, and if we leave aside whether it's right or wrong, we are in a bad place. And what's the answer? Well, verse 11 indicated the answer. Nehemiah told them, restore now to them even this day. Nehemiah was not asking the nobles and the rulers, hey, you know what? Why don't you guys feel really bad about this? Uh, he didn't even say, stop what you're doing. What they had to do was they had to set right the wrong that they had done. If money had been charged unfairly, or if collateral for a loan was taken unfairly, they had to restore those things. They had to set them right. And they had to do it immediately. Look at it again in verse 11. Restore now to them even this day. Now, that's quite a line for Nehemiah to lay down before these nobles, before these uh, rulers among the Jewish people in Jerusalem at that time. And I can't tell you if Nehemiah was nervous or not. I kind of suspect that he was not. But even if he wasn't nervous, surely he was curious as to how they would respond. So I want you to check out verses 12 and 13 and see how they responded. Here we go again. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, where we read. So they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. I love this. What a tremendous response. Did you see what the nobles and the rulers said? Verse 12 begins it, says simply, we will restore it. Nehemiah told them the truth and love. Guys, you're in wrong here. You're affecting the peace. You're affecting the financial health of the community. You're indirectly stopping the work of rebuilding the walls. You got to get this right. He lovingly but truthfully confronted these brothers and they received the rebuke. I tell you, sometimes I think there's no greater miracle among the people of God than a rebuke received. And I can imagine, if you just give me the sake of imagination just for a moment. I can imagine that Nehemiah did not deliver this rebuke perfectly, that there was something wrong in it. 
It was the time of day was wrong. The tone of his voice was too loud or too quiet. It was a little too clear, a little unclear. I don't know, whatever it is. I'm going to speculate that whatever the rebuke was that he gave, no matter how good it was, it wasn't perfect. And instead of trying to poke holes in it, these brothers, these godly men said, you know what? You're right. We're wrong. We're going to do the right thing. We were wrong before. We will set it right. Their teachable, correctable spirit was very impressive. Again, sometimes I think the greatest miracle among God's people today is a rebuke that's actually received. And just to give strength to this, did you see what Nehemiah did in verse 13? Nehemiah verse 13 of chapter 5 verse 13 says that Nehemiah shook out the fold of his garment and said, so may God shake out each man. He takes his robes and he shakes them and he goes, you know what? May God do this to every man who does not perform the promise. You see, Nehemiah wisely knew that their words were not enough. Their actions had to be followed through with real action. And happily, it was done. Did you see that there in verse 13 at the end of it? It says that the people did according to this promise. You see, there was something wonderful about this public oath that Nehemiah had them take. If you'll notice, he had them take it before the priests, the whole community. The wisdom in doing that was that it made these rulers and nobles accountable. They made the promise publicly, and if they failed to live up to the promise, they would be accountable to the whole community. Friends, isn't it true that oftentimes we need accountability to help us do what our spirit is willing to do, but our flesh is weak to do. Look, I just want to give you a little word right here, right now. Perhaps accountability is a missing step in your life right now in dealing with an area where you're having a hard time doing what's right. I don't know what that area might be. It could be any number ones of things, but maybe What you need is greater accountability. You are being honest with a brother or sister as appropriate and telling them about this struggle that you're having and asking them to hold you accountable and ask you about it frequently. That is a gift from God. Okay, now let's continue on and see something else that Nehemiah did that was very important in this. Uh, Verses 14, 15, and 16 Nehemiah is going to explain here how he did not tax the people. Again, uh, beginning at verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brethren ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants 
bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on the wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. I want you to notice this. Nehemiah could not stop the king's tax that was mentioned in verse 4. But what he could choose to do is not make the taxes worse by taxing the people for his own support, even when he had the right to do it. Friends, Nehemiah was there as a legitimate government official. He had the right to be supported by taxes from the people that he served. But he said, no, on this occasion, I'm going to give up that right. I'm not going to do it because I want to see the work of God be furthered. This reminds me of something that we find in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. He's another great example of someone who had the right to be supported, but didn't always take that right because when it was better for the cause of the gospel for him to not take the right, he would not be supported. Now, if you take a look at the ministry of Paul in its entirety, there were times when he did receive appropriate support as a minister of God, and there were times when he refused appropriate support as a minister of the Word of God. He made his choice based on whatever would be more effective for doing the work. Paul encountered situations, especially in his church planting and evangelistic work, where it was better for him to be very public about the fact, I'm not going to receive anything from the people that I minister to. But then there were other situations where he did, because in that situation, he judged it was better for the work of God for him to be able to give his full attention to the work. I think that's a very relevant principle dealing with the question, some people ask whether pastors or ministers should be supported today. Again, I think it's a question of what's better for the cause of the gospel. I could envision certain circumstances where it would be better for a pastor or minister to refuse financial support, but for the most part, whenever it is possible, it's better for a pastor or a minister to be able to devote himself full-time to the care and the teaching of God's people. Again, that's legitimate support. But if the circumstances arose that it was better for the cause of God for him to not receive support from the people of God, then he should be willing to do that. Matter of fact, he should be able to say what Nehemiah said. Did you notice that there in verse 15? He said this, I did not do so because of the fear of God. See, Nehemiah could say this because it didn't really matter to him what others did. If there were 50 other governors in different provinces of the Persian Empire who taxed their people like crazy and enriched themselves from it, Nehemiah would say, I don't care what they do. I did not do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah lived under another standard. And we should be willing to live under that same standard that Nehemiah did. We should be able to say, whenever we are confronted by the sins 
that all the world around us takes for granted, we should be able to say words that echoed Nehemiah's words. We should be able to say, I did not do so because of the love of Jesus. Well, friends, you could also say because of the fear of God. That's fine too. But you could add to it because of the love of Jesus. Matter of fact, not only did Nehemiah refuse to put additional taxes upon the people, he was generous to the people. Look at this in verses 17 and 18. We read this. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers. Well, that must have been the biggest table of all time. No, that's just a little dumb joke there. He doesn't mean a literal table. He means just the people that he provided for. Verse 17, I'll start it again. It says, And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers beside those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. You see, Nehemiah did not only refuse to take when he could have, he also gave when he didn't have to. He received a lot of food from the king's provisions, which he could have sold for his own profit. Instead, he gave them away so that he could be an example of generosity, feeding as many as 150 people regularly. And he could have taken even more, the governor's provisions, but he didn't. Nehemiah was a great example for what he did not take, and he's also a great example for what he did not keep. In other words, his generosity. And he did this all, if you'll notice the end of verse 18, because the bondage was heavy on this people. Nehemiah, in his own life, lived the way that he told the nobles and the rulers to live. Remember when he talked to them earlier before, he said, don't make money off the misfortune of your brethren. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. Nehemiah did what every godly leader must do. He never expected more of his followers than he expected of himself. Now, Nehemiah chapter 5 concludes with a little prayer in verse 19. You see that prayer? Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. You know, I'm sure that there's some folks who think, wow, Nehemiah, kind of a proud prayer to pray. I don't think it's a proud prayer. He's just saying, God, remember me. Remember me for good. I've tried to do good. I've done good for the people. Remember me. And Nehemiah did a lot of good. Nehemiah, we see it just in this chapter. He cared for the poor and hurting. He boldly confronted injustice. You know, sometimes the people who get a lot done in this world don't care a lot about other people. But Nehemiah wasn't like that. He cared for the poor and hurting. He boldly confronted injustice. He set captives free. And here's number four. 
Nehemiah sacrificially served. Let me use a phrase that might sound familiar to you. Nehemiah did not come to be served, but to serve. Let me ask you a question. Does that remind you of anyone? The Gospels tell us that Jesus spoke those same words over himself. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You see, in all of these ways, Nehemiah is an amazing example of Jesus. Nehemiah cared for the poor and hurting. Jesus cares for the poor and hurting. Nehemiah boldly confronted injustice. Jesus boldly confronts injustice. Nehemiah set captives free. Jesus sets captives free. And Nehemiah sacrificially served. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus spoke those same words over himself. So, may I simply say, of course, we can look at this and say, what a tremendous example for us. And it is an example for us. Let's take it as a good example. But let me add something to this. It's something for us to receive. Let Jesus serve you. Let him set you free. Hey, I'll conclude with this. Let Jesus set the rules for how you handle money, how you make it, spend it, and give it. If you get that money thing right, things can move forward. The building work can resume, which kind of is on pause here through Nehemiah chapter 5. The work can resume. There may be things in your life right now that God is waiting for you to get the money thing right under his lordship, and then things can move forward. Well, doing all this, we'll look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, Let me just close with a quick prayer here, and then we can finish. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that what we see in part in Nehemiah, we see in perfection in Jesus Christ. So we say, Lord, we ask that you would serve us. It sounds funny for us to say that, but you came to serve us. You came to serve us by setting us free. You came to serve us by giving us life. You came to serve us by taking away our sin. You came to serve us by giving us power to live honoring lives to you. So Lord, we receive your service and we ask that you would fill us with the same heart, conforming us to your glorious image. And God, I especially pray that you would help us to get the money thing right, to get it right before you, how we make it, how we spend it, and how we give it. Help us to do that in a way that brings you honor, and we know that that will bring freedom into our life. Do it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. 